Let me begin by saying good morning again. I want to say good morning to those of you who are here, but also a special greeting to those of you who are joining us by video right now. If you're in our traditional sanctuary or on live stream or on TV, I'm really glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. I'm glad that we have this opportunity to be connected together, to learn from God's word together, to be restored together to life in Jesus Christ. We're in this series together right now, a journey we've been taking together called Restored, and the beginning of this journey has been how we've been learning to be restored in our understanding of who God is, what, what God is like. We've been learning to know God, not in whatever way we made up or accidentally picked up along the way, but especially how do we learn to know who God is when we meet God in Jesus. And the piece of the picture we're learning today is a really critical piece. I would say even personally speaking, I think it's maybe that part of the picture of God that God has been most at work on in my life in this season. But maybe more importantly for all of us together, I, I think our series up to this point has been maybe open to a, a potential misunderstanding. There's a possible mistake that we would make if we left today's part out of our picture of God. Let me look back with us for a second at part of where we've come and, and show you what I mean by that. One of the things we've been learning as we're restored to knowing God in Jesus is we learn that God is good. That's one of the adjectives we learn to describe God as good. He's not the author of evil and suffering in our lives. So a lot of us have things in our lives that get sideways and backwards and painful from time to time, and we'll attribute that to God. But we've been learning to know that God is not the one who caused our spouse to abandon us or cancer cells to grow in our bodies or famine to strike the land. That's not the God that we meet in Jesus. We've learned to know that God is good. He's the author not of evil and suffering, but of good in our lives. We've learned that God is generous, or another word would be gracious. That God's love for us is not conditional. We're not on the performance plan. We're not on the comparison plan. God doesn't love the half of us who are better than the other half of us. You don't have to figure out which half you are, right? It's not about, did you, have you been good enough this week for God to like you or love you? We learn to understand and form a picture of God like Jesus said. That God is like your heavenly father who runs down the road after you before you find your way home and wraps his arms around you, whether you were lost far away and wandering or you were kind of in the backyard but a little bitter and resentful. God is our heavenly father who loves us no matter where we're lost. We learned a couple weeks ago to start thinking of God as holy, right? That in all of God's love and goodness, that God's not a teddy bear who doesn't care how you live, but because God is for you, God is against that which harms you, Right? God wants the best for our lives, and there are things in our lives that God will look at and see, I want better for you than that. We've been forming this picture of God, but there's a possible misunderstanding that we might be forming. One thing that could be happening is that God is like way over on kind of one side of our lives, one side of existence, and we're stuck with our sin on the other side. Kind of a picture like this, right? And we could see that God is, well, he's against that which harms us. He's opposed to the sin in our lives that breaks our hearts, breaks our relationships, hurts us, and thank God that since he's opposed to it, he can forgive it because we know that we see it in our lives. That's good news. But is it true that God is just like over here and God has like a posture towards sin, has an attitude about sin where he's against it and can forgive it, but it's really still our problem. Sin is actually still over here. It's able to break our hearts, wreck our lives, and well, that's all there is to it. Or is it possible that God also defeats sin? Can God set us free from sin? Does God like move across there and not leave it just with us? Let me give you an example in some of the ways we've been talking about in recent weeks. What if it was the case that any of us ever suffered with the sin of greed? Right? Now this is 2016 in 
America. Does anybody here ever suffer with greed? Right? I mean, that's, that's a pretty common temptation for us, right? It's not good for us. When we give into the lie that one more thing will make us happy, a little bit more toys will increase the joy in our life, we start hoarding stuff for ourselves rather than sharing generously with other people, it shrinks our hearts and it breaks our relationships. And we've learned to know that God who is for us is against that which harms us and he doesn't want that for us. And thank God that God can forgive it in our lives. But are we stuck with it? Do we have to live in slavery to that sort of thing or can we be set free? Or do we ever struggle with sins of lust in our lives? Do we ever look at other people in objectifying kinds of ways? Because when we do that, that shrinks our hearts, right? That's bad for us. That hurts us and it hurts our relationships. And we've learned to know that God doesn't want that for us. He's for us and so he's against that which harms us. And thank God, God can forgive that in our lives. But are we enslaved to it? Do we just have to live in it anyway? Are we just stuck in it? Do you ever struggle with sins of anger in your life? Are your relationships ever characterized by bitterness, unforgiveness, revenge, uh, vengeance, or feelings of revenge? You know, because when that happens in us, it kind of shrinks our hearts, doesn't it? it? It wrecks our relationships. It's poisonous to us. And we've learned that God doesn't want that for us. I'm glad for that. Thank God that God's able to forgive that in our lives. But do we just have to live like that? Does it have to be the character of our relationships? Are we enslaved to that? Or can God set us free from that? Today, what I want to talk to you about is I want to take us back to an ancient Bible story that actually, once we understand, it starts to give shape to the whole story of the Bible and becomes a part of the picture of God that Jesus brings to us. That Jesus shows us the God who sets his people free. But to start there, to get there, I need to start with this ancient Bible story a story of something that God did like 3,500 years ago. Anybody born yet 3,500 years? No, this is a long time ago, right? It's a story of something called the Exodus. And some of you have heard that before. Maybe some of you have never heard of that before. The story of the Exodus is a story of a, a people. They were the Hebrew people, the early Israelites. And they were slaves in the ancient country of Egypt, in ancient Egypt. They were enslaved under the leadership, or under the governorship of a king who was called the Pharaoh of that land. And the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt. And as you might expect from the word slavery, it was a brutal existence. It was a terrible thing for them. They did hard labor. They were used as objects, as tools, as work animals for the benefit of the people who were in power, right? And they had to make the bricks. They would labor in the hot sun and make the bricks for the buildings that would profit the Egyptians. And Pharaoh was bloodthirsty. He was merciless. And they, he would, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians were always afraid that the Hebrews were going to revolt. And so they tried to oppress them. And they had violent, genocidal practices to kill the Hebrews and make their lives hard. At one point, Pharaoh said, I'm so tired of their laziness. They're, they weren't lazy, but he was so tired of it. He says, you know, they use, they're making bricks with the straw that we have. Now they're going to have to make bricks without straw. they got to gather all their own straw. And he made their labor harder, and they're breaking their backs under the hot sun, making bricks without straw, gathering the straw for themselves to make the bricks. And they cried out to God. They cried out to God, and God heard their prayer. And there's this kind of famous story from the book of Exodus. It's in Exodus chapter 3. We heard it read in both of our worship venues this morning where God calls this individual Hebrew named Moses, who was really uniquely well-positioned for this job because he had been raised in the court of Pharaoh. He was a Hebrew guy who was raised as an Egyptian. 
And God said to Moses, I'm going to send you back into the court of Pharaoh, and you're going to tell the Pharaoh that he's got to let my people go. And Moses went, no, I don't think so. (laughs) Have have you ever felt like God might be doing something in your life that you didn't feel ready for? Well, God listens to our excuses, and then he figures out how we don't need to make them anymore. (laughs) And he did that for Moses, and he enabled and empowered Moses to go to the court of Pharaoh and say, you've got to let God's people go. And Moses gets there into the court of Pharaoh. And one of the things that's really important to understand about the clash between Moses, who's speaking for God, and Pharaoh, is that this is not simply a clash between God and some king, like a God-human clash, because Pharaoh thought he was God. And all the Egyptians worshiped Pharaoh as God, and he wanted the Hebrew people to recognize him as God. And so when God sends his word through Moses to Pharaoh, saying, you can't enslave my people anymore, you gotta let them go, this is a cosmic conflict between Yahweh, who is the God of the Israelites, the God of heaven and earth, who made a covenant with his people to love them and bless them, and Pharaoh, who thinks he's God and does not have their best interests at heart. And it's a contest for who's going to be God of this people and whose kingdom is going to be realized on earth. Is it Pharaoh, who's there breaking their backs, making bricks without straw, who enslaves them and does not care if they die? Or is it Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who's come to set his people free? To make a very long story short, Pharaoh is persuaded to give up, to let the Israelites go. And on the day before they leave Egypt, God gives them a commemorative meal to celebrate. Some of you may have heard of it before. It's called the Passover meal. It's called Passover because the angel of God passed over their homes on the night before the, on the, night before the Israelites were released from Egypt and walked out into freedom. And God, through Moses, gave them some specific instructions about the meal, about the foods, about the stories, about the rituals in this meal. And God, through Moses, told the Israelites, you're going to eat this meal on this day of the year, on this holiday, every year, forever. (laughs) In every generation, you're going to do this. Every year, so that you will always remember, not just because you heard a story, but because you have tasted it. Because you have smelled the food cooking. Because you've heard the stories and gathered with your family, because your parents taught you and your grandparents taught them, you will always, always remember that I am the God who sets people free. I'm the God who sets people free. And the Israelites were led out of Egypt. And under the leadership of Moses, God led them across the Red Sea. Maybe you've seen this like in the movies or something. And God parted the waters of the Red Sea and the Israelites crossed. And then to make another long story very short, for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness until they got to the promised land. And a new generation of leadership was there. Joshua was Moses' successor. And he led them across the Jordan River. So first they went through the waters of the Red Sea. Years later, across the waters of the Jordan River, finally into the promised land. And in the story of the Exodus, the people went from life in Egypt through a journey to life in the promised land. And this story of the Exodus and this identity of God as the God who sets his people free became central, foundational, fundamental to the Israelites' understanding of who their God is. Lots of times in the Old Testament, when God will speak to his people through a prophet, that's how he'll begin. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I want to to give you one example of that this morning so you see what I'm talking about. This actually comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5. It's from the Ten Commandments. Anyone ever heard of the Ten Commandments before? Kind of a famous passage. 
Now, the Bible says, the Bible calls the Ten Commandments the Ten Commandments, but doesn't ever number them, right? So people have disagreed over the years about like which one is commandment three and which one is commandment four and whatever. The Jewish people actually number them differently than lots of Christians number them. In the Jewish way of counting, the very first word, in fact, the very first word of the Ten Commandments isn't a commandment. It's this. It's Deuteronomy 5, chapter 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then God proceeds with the other nine commandments. But before God gives them their new way of life, because they used to have a way of life, right? Do whatever Pharaoh tells you to do and die slowly or don't do it and die quickly. There was a way of life in Egypt. And now God has brought them out and said, I'm going to give you a new way of life. And he gives them commandments about their relationship with him and about their relationships with one another. But the very first thing is, remember who I am. Before I tell you what to do, remember that I set you free from Egypt. I heard your cry. I liberated you. It's a word of relationship before it's a word of commandment. Central to the identity of God. And then let me give you one more example from the Ten Commandments of how this continues. This is the commandment of what some people call the third or fourth commandment, the commandment about observing the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. And you'll see how this too is rooted in the story of the Exodus. God said through Moses, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. This part sounded familiar so far, right? It starts to get interesting. Neither you, nor your son or your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, no one work your donkey on the Sabbath day, okay? Or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. God was concerned about the immigrant and the alien among them, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Why? Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. You were slaves. And that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. It's not just like a break or a day to watch TV or something. It was a structure of compassion and justice built right into the rhythm of time. And every time we celebrate a week, we remember the Exodus. We remember that God is the God who sets people free. So central to God's identity. So let me just ask you a question for a second. Do you think that if you were, if we were the ancient Israelite people, and we celebrated this rich commemorative meal holiday every single year, in the Passover meal that told the story of the Exodus. And every week, every Sabbath day, we would remember that we're supposed to give a day of rest to ourselves, not only we who labor, but those who labor for us. And that was built into the very structure of time every week that we celebrate. Do you think the story of the Exodus would start to like sink down into the structure of our lives, into our understanding of who God is? God is the God who sets people free. And when Jesus came, 1,500 years later, this is the God that he brought into our lives. Uh, Let me give you a couple examples of that. The first one comes from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus was baptized in, guess where? The Jordan River by John, right? God called this prophet, John, to announce that that God was doing a new salvation, that he was coming to set his people free again. And so John went down to the Jordan River and told people that the new day of salvation was dawning. And if you want to participate in it, come on down into the wilderness, right, and come to the Jordan River, and you'll come down into the waters of the Jordan River and participate in a symbolic act of crossing it again because God is doing a new act of salvation. 
This is Exodus stuff, right? And Jesus participates in the baptism of John because, of course, he knows that he's the one in whom God is doing this. But we got to kind of shift our categories a little bit if we're going to understand this. Because I don't think any of you were ever enslaved in Egypt, right? I wasn't. What is God setting people free from now? God is setting people free from life and sin and setting us free instead for life in Christ. It's not just the Pharaoh. In fact, for the, for the Israelites who were living around Jesus' time, it's not just the Caesar of Rome. It's the dark power behind all those things, behind all those things that steal life and destroy community and oppress people. Jesus came to set us free from life and sin instead to live life with him. But just in case you thought that was a coincidence, let me fast forward to the end of Jesus' life where he does it again. And you can hear Jesus teaching about this actually all throughout his life. At the end of Jesus' life on this earth, when he was heading to Jerusalem to escalate the conflicts that were going to lead to his death, he did it right at the Passover. He did it when all the Israelites were making pilgrim journeys from all over the land to come to Jerusalem to remember that God is the God who sets people free. And as he escalated this conflict, he'd already been teaching his followers, his disciples, his apprentices. He'd been telling them, I'm, I'm going to get killed. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be betrayed and arrested and crucified. And so you know that I have not lost, that God has not given up, that it's not over. On the third day, I will rise again. But over and over again in the Gospels, he tells us to the disciples, and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make any sense. That's how are you going to die? Sometimes they're like, no, you're not. <laughs> a great idea to tell the Lord of heaven and earth, no, it's a bad idea. Don't do that. And then on the night that Jesus is about to die, like hours before he's going to get arrested, tried, and crucified, Jesus decides to explain it to them in a different way. He sits down and shares a meal with them. You know what meal this is, right? This is the Passover meal. And so he instructs his disciples that preparations will be made for the Passover meal, the same preparations that thousands and millions of Jewish people have made every year with their family, year after year, in every generation. Exodus is on the mind. The covenant that God made with them is at the front of their minds. And Jesus sits down to share the Passover meal with them. And they think they know what this is about. And partly they do, but partly they have no idea yet. And Jesus, who hosts this meal with them, takes the bread that's on the table that's full of all kinds of symbolic meaning already and he tells them that this is my body which is broken for you. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> and we already know the story. Our parents taught it to us. Their parents taught them. Their parents taught them. Jesus was saying that God was setting people free in a whole new way now. He took one of the cups that was on the table. There were several cups of wine involved in the Passover meal. They all had symbolic significance. And Jesus took it. He said, this cup is it's a new covenant. Like, new covenant? The prophets had said a new covenant was coming. We already had a covenant. This is the new covenant. God is going to set his people free in me. The new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus set people free. It's a new exodus. From the very beginning, followers of Jesus have been new exodus people. We don't need to be set free from Egypt. We don't need to be liberated from Rome. We all need to be set free from sin for life in Christ. Now, this interpretation of the story that I'm offering you today, I didn't make this up. It's kind of clever. I almost wish I had, but I didn't make this up. <laughs> this, I learned this from the Apostle Paul, one of the early Christians, and he told this 
to the early Christians who were in the ancient city of Rome in a letter that he wrote to them that we now call the book of Romans. And I want to read you a couple verses. It's Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. So he says, what shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin, like life in Egypt, life in sin? Should we remain over there so that grace may increase? Because is that what the reality is, that God is on one side and sin is on the other? He can forgive it, so let's just get grace. Absolutely not. That's a misunderstanding. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And you're like, what? Wait a minute, what are you dying? And then he says, oh, or don't you know? that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, if we pass through the water with Jesus, we were baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a new life. Just like God set his people free from life in Egypt to live life in the promised land, Jesus is the one in whom God sets us free from life and sin by joining us with Jesus for life in Christ instead. If you were here two weeks ago, I asked you a question toward the end of the message, and if you weren't here two weeks ago, I'll I'll catch you up. We were learning about how God is holy, and because he's for us, he's against that which harms us. And I asked you to consider What might God be putting on your heart? And I shared with you how God was working on my heart. What might God be putting on your heart to say, because I'm for you, I want better for you than that? You know, is there something in your life that that is diminishing life, that's breaking your own heart, that's breaking relationships? And I ask you to pray about that and reflect on that and start walking away from that. But honestly, because it was two weeks ago and not yet today, it was still incomplete. It was still open to that same misunderstanding that I talked about at the beginning of the message today. You might have been left with the understanding that, well, God's against this in my life, and God can forgive it, and thank God that God can forgive it, and now it's up to me to set myself free. Very few people set themselves free from slavery. Very few people can break out of bondage, break out of the bars that hold them. Today we are reminded, today we learn in our picture of God that God is the God who sets people free. And in just a few minutes in our worship service and both of our worship venues, We're going to celebrate that meal that Jesus gave his disciples, that meal of the God who sets people free. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion. And as you celebrate that meal today, I want you to to receive that, not just as an idea in words, but, but a meal that reminds you who God is and who you are in ways that you can taste and smell and remember that God is the God who sets people free. And so just have that thing in your heart and in your mind that you know that God is wanting to grow your life in this area, that this is something he wants you to be set free from, and you can't do it by yourself. Because that's the next question. If God is the God who sets people free, if that's who God is, who are you? You are not a slave anymore, right? And let me be realistic about this. When God led the Israelites out of Egypt to the promised land, did they get there the next day? 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? If you've ever hoped for something for 40 years, that's kind of a long time, right? I'm 40 years old. It's my entire lifespan, right? You are not a slave anymore. But while you are on the journey of being joined to Christ and brought to the promised land, I want to tell you, you can expect the same things that the Israelites experienced in the wilderness. Time after time, you read through the books of Genesis, of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, you find the Israelites saying, 
Oh, man, it's so hot out here in the wilderness. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. This is hard. God, couldn't you have just left us in Egypt? I just imagine God going, ouch. <laughs> I'm the God who sets you free. But when you haven't been to the promised land yet, when you can't see it from where you are, and you're used to living in Egypt, it's so easy to go back to what you're used to. And aren't we used to sin? Aren't we accustomed to those patterns of life that steal life? We, we get wronged and we react in anger because that's what we're used to. It's what's been modeled for us. We're used to ways of using people and objectifying people that's just normal in our society. We're used to greed. We're used to feeling sad and feeling unsatisfied with life and think that if only we had a little more, just one more thing, then our joy quotient would go up. They're all empty promises. It doesn't work that way. But we're tempted to go back to what we've known. And so I want you to remember, as you live your life, the experience of this meal, of what you taste here, of this story that's meant to transform our imaginations. When you go around going, oh, well, of course I made that mistake because I'm a sinner. I want you to transfer that language and say, I'm not a slave anymore. I've been set free by the God who sets people free. And I may not be in the promised land anymore, but I don't have to go back to Egypt. We're so tempted to go back and make bricks without straw. And it's just dumb. It hurts us. I do it. You do it. We don't have to do it because God sets people free. We don't have to go back there anymore. When you celebrate the Lord's Supper, when we share in this meal today, I want you to, when you're sitting in the rows waiting to come forward, pray about this. When you're waiting in line, you come forward, taste it, smell it. Remember that God is the God who sets people free and you are not a slave anymore. When you go back to your rows afterward, pray about that. Pray for the people around you that God will set them free, that God will make us a, a people together who live in the journey on the way to the promised land a testimony, a witness to the world about the power of God who isn't just over here leaving us stuck in our sins, suffering with it, but God is the God who sets people free. Now let's pray together. God, you are the God who sets your people free and we are not slaves anymore. And we pray that you would speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit today, this week, going forward, in this meal that we share. God, that you would reassure our hearts of who you are, that you would transfer our imaginations, that you would transform our lives and our thoughts to know who you are and to know who we are in you, and that you would transform our lives, that you would set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.